Exodus chapter 33, one of my favorite chapters. Exodus 33 verse 11 tells us that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Then in verse 20, Moses wants to see God even more. He wants to hear more of the Lord. But God tells Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand here on the rock. And God just passes by, letting him see just the back of his, of his robe. And it tells us Moses' face was glowing when he came down off the mountain. Once again, face to face speaks of an intimate, close, and unhindered form of communication with God. And Israel, the only nation ever, was able to taste of an unhindered form of communication with God himself. Moses was able to taste of this. And we today, we are able to taste of this same form of communication if we continually draw near to God he will draw near to us. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 5. Moses then says, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. So who spoke the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel? God. God is the one that spoke the Ten Commandments. Everybody's afraid. Everybody says, we don't want to hear another word. So then from there on out, Moses is the one who gives all of the different laws. We could look at that again. I don't know if you want to go through all those ceremonial laws all over again. Washing, clean, unclean, leprosy, white dot, red dot, red hair, all of those things. Moses hears that from the Lord. And then Moses tells the people, second half of verse 5, For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up the mountain. Moses here, he becomes the mediator between God and the nation of Israel. Moses throughout the Old Testament is seen as a type for Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 19, this is a great verse, especially if you have anyone trying to take your Christianity and bound you by the old law. Galatians 3.19 tells us, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. The law was only there until Jesus was to be born. And then after Jesus was born, he fulfills the law, and now we are in the new covenant. But this law was given to the nation of Israel by the hand of a mediator, and that mediator was Moses. But now for us in the new covenant, who's our mediator? Jesus, just like our sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, it tells us that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it tells us, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Family, you don't need to go to me or to any other individual to hear the voice of the Lord. We have that mediator in Jesus Christ. What we need to do is to get alone and get in the word of God, and then we'll be able to hear the voice of the Lord in our lives.
We can also be quick to get down on the nation of Israel. They had a chance to have more fellowship with God, but instead they were fearful and they told Moses, hey, you go on ahead. However, all throughout Scripture, there is only one response we see when someone sees the full glory of God or of Jesus Christ. And that response each and every time, it's not holy laughter. That response each and every time is not a bunch of gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's not tongues or anything like that. That response isn't being given a specific message from the Lord. That response is the same from Old Testament to New. And that's falling on our faces, realizing His holiness and our sinful state. I'll rattle off a few scriptures for you. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5. The prophet Isaiah has an encounter with God. And what's his reaction? He says, woe is me. For I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 28 tells us, This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. The prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 8, verse 18. Now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. The disciples, they have a similar reaction. In Matthew 17, verse 6, Peter gets a glimpse at the full glory of Jesus Christ. And it tells us when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly Afraid. This is Peter, James, and John. Finally, Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Peter, his first interaction with Jesus, this isn't the first time he falls down. He says, He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, the apostle John. The apostle that called himself the disciple who Jesus loved. When he sees Jesus in his unbridled glory, he tells us that he fell at his feet as dead. But then Jesus laid his right hand on him saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I pray that each of us get to taste of one of these amazing encounters in the presence of God. And these true encounters with God, they don't give us a glimpse at heaven that then we write a book and we get a number one New York Times bestseller. These glimpses of Jesus and of God, they don't give us a new revelation where we get and gather our own group of people. Every true encounter with Jesus Christ leaves us flat on our face, weeping, realizing His glory and holiness and our sinful state. We go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. The Lord gives one final statement before he begins to give them the Ten Commandments. It tells us, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Truly what he's saying here, literally in the Hebrew, he's saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
And throughout the book of Deuteronomy, there's an emphasis on Yahweh being Israel's God. This phrase appears 279 times and 239 times and and 239 verses throughout the book of Deuteronomy. This phrase appears a total of 396 times throughout the entire Old Testament. So this phrase being used in this one book is being used just as many times in this one book as the other 38 books in the Old Testament combined. And what God is doing is that before he gives his law to the people once again, before he gave his law to the people the first time, he reiterates to them who he is and what he's done for these people. Who he is and what he's done for his people. How many parents do we have here tonight? few parents, right? Parents, who makes the rules in your home? Some other, maybe the wives look at the husband, the husband looks at the wife, right? Who makes the rules? And why is it that usually it's either the, the father or the mother who makes the rules? It's because who's the one that brought those kids into this world? It's you two. You brought them into this world, you paid the hospital bills, you paid the diaper bills, then you pay the school bills, the electric bill, the water bill. You're the one who changed them. You're the one who fed them. You're the one who took them on vacation, bought them toys. You did everything for them. So doesn't it make sense that you get to make the rules? Of course. As we as parents, we look at ourselves, we go, of course we should make the rules. How much more the God who formed us in our mother's womb, who gives breath into our lungs and life to everyone who walks on this earth, The God who knows the number of hairs on our head and the number of days that we will live and knows our needs before we even ask him. How much more does he have every right to give us morals and to tell us what is wrong and right? And how much more do we have the obligation to obey him and his word? Forget about changing our diapers and paying for our electricity and water. He gives us the very life within our lungs. And we and all mankind is obligated to obey his word. Robert Jameson, he says, The reasonableness of the law is founded in the eternal relation as creatures to our creator. He's the one that made the game. He's the one that made us, so he's the one that gets to make the rules. Verse 7, first of the Ten Commandments, he says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I... The Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, 
nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. We see that the Ten Commandments are truly divided into two groups. One is our relationship with God, and then the second is our relationship with mankind. And if our relationship with God is off, then there's no way that our relationship with mankind can be right on. First and foremost, we have to be right with the creator of heaven and earth and agree with his law, his morals, his morality. If not, we've got no shot at being moral men and women in this world. Some people argue were there four commandments on one tablet and six on the other? Was it five and five? I think that's an argument not having, not worth having. But we'll dive in here. Verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. In the Hebrew, it's literally, have no other gods before my face. And what God is saying here is that he is the only God. Israel was not allowed to find other smaller gods that perhaps lined up with their Judeo, not Judeo-Christian, but their Judeo-life view. God was the only God and could be the only God in their lives. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39, God says, Therefore know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. There's no other God out there. He created the universe. He created us. And then he had enough patience with us to keep us alive long enough so that we could accept him and so that he could save us. It is more than logical for us to only serve and only worship the God in the Bible, Yahweh, exclusively. It makes more than enough sense. You can think of Romans chapter 12, how it says that it is our reasonable service to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. The only thing within reason, the only thing that makes logical sense is to serve him and serve him only. This leaves no room for us to serve and worship other things. We can think of our marriages. Does it not make logical sense for you two to be mutually exclusive? That you shall have no other husbands before me? You shall have no other wives before me? In a healthy marriage, we all agree, that's the only logical thing that makes sense. Egypt had many gods. Canaan had many gods. Babylon, guess what? They had many gods. Rome, Greece, they had many gods as well. And guess what? America has many gods as well. Just because we don't call them the Ashtaroth or the Baal, just because we don't have a god or an idol on the top of uh, the hill in Tropical Park or hills in, in, our, in our state, does not mean that we don't have a struggle to make sure that we have no other gods before Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Materialism, popularity, sex had specific gods in ancient times. Now we just worship these things openly. We've come to a day and age where people base their identity 
who they are on the God, on the idol that they are worshiping. We need to be careful that just because we don't struggle with having a physical idol in our home that we bow down and worship, we need to make sure that we are all still tempted by idolatry in our lifetime. And we need to make sure that he is the only God in our lives, that he is exclusively the God in our life. Whenever we have a greater admiration, attachment, devotion, honor, or respect to anything or anyone other than the God of the Bible and his word, we are committing idolatry. It's a great checklist for us. Do we have admiration, attachment, devotion, honor, or respect to anything more than the God of the Bible? And there are good things. There are good things that can creep into our hearts that we have greater devotion for those good things than the God of the Bible. For many of us, maybe it's our spouse, our children, our job, our bank account, our money, our home, our car. There are many good things that begin to creep up into a place where they've become our idol. Where now we're backtracking on God and on his word and we are worshiping this other person or thing. David Guzik, he says, this means God demands to be more than just added to our lives. We do not just add Jesus to the life we already have. We are to give him all of our life. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 come to mind again. To be that living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. Throughout the New Testament, I got to tell you, the New Testament does not have one nice thing to say about idolatry. Not one nice thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, it tells us, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Idolatry, we should run from it, run away from it. Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21, it tells us two things about idolatry. Number one, idolatry is seen as a work of the flesh. We have this battle of the flesh and the spirit, and the, one of the works of the flesh is idolatry. The second thing that Galatians 5 tells us is that those who habitually practice idolatry will not enter into heaven. I'll read it for you, Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are idolatry, uh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness. Lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries. I love that Paul puts this, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Peter tells us two things about idolatry as well. He tells us that idolatry is a part of our past lifetime. That's not who we are anymore. Now we serve only one God and Him alone. But in our past lifetime, we served many different gods. The second thing that Peter tells us is that the people we used to live with and share life with, our former friends, the people we shared most of our life with, 
They're going to think it's weird that we are not committing idolatry with them anymore. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, he says, We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regards to these things, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. One last scripture on this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, makes it very clear. He says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. These are all New Testament scriptures that warn us about idolatry to the point that if we are calling ourselves a Christian, and we are openly worshiping and serving something else or someone else other than Yahweh, the God of the Bible, we are to separate ourselves from them to the point where we don't even go out with them for a tostada and café con leche. Not even to break bread with them, not even to eat with them. So that's how we have to be careful with our time. Where does our time go? Where does our love go? Where does our admiration, attachment, devotion, honor, and respect go? Does it all go to God and His Word, or does it go to other people? Verse 8 and 9, he says, You should not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. Now, I don't know how many of us are struggling with this, but it's very important that this is not a command against art. Some hyper-religious people will say that God, he outlaws all forms of art. No, this is a command against creating something that you are going to go on and worship. God himself told the Israelites to create two cherubim upon the Ark of the Covenant and to make them out of gold. God himself told them within the curtain of the Holy of Holies to seem cherubim all throughout that curtain. Sadly, throughout the whole Bible, specifically the Old Testament, if you're going through the reading plan, you see it in First and Second Kings, God's people, even Israel's own kings, would create altars and places of worship for idols made by man's hands. And sadly, it's no different for us today. In many churches, so-called believers are creating idols to worship. One of the churches that struggles with this a lot are Catholic churches. Adam Clark warns, to countenance its image worship, the Roman Catholic Church has left the whole of the second commandment out of the Decalogue. Decalogue is just a fancy term for Ten Commandments. And thus lost one whole commandment out of the ten, but to keep up the number, they've divided the tenth into two. Romans chapter 1, verse 22 and 23 makes this clear. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. We have to be careful about making idols. Why does God tell us to not make idols? Because the Lord your God, 
Yahweh, your God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is a jealous God. And sometimes people, they find that very strange. God, he's not allowed to be jealous. Jealousy is a bad thing. We know that our God, he is a holy God. When it says that our God is a holy God, that means that our God is holy and perfect, and there's not even a microbe of evil and sin within him. He's holy, he's pure. We also know that our God, our God is love. And that perfect love and that perfect holiness is also jealous for us. And we should be more than okay with that. Jealousy is a part of a healthy love for someone else. I hope every marriage here, there's a healthy dose of jealousy here. Husbands, if your wife says that she's going out on a date to a fancy dinner with another guy, you should feel jealous and say, no, that's not okay, right? Unless it's her father or her brother. It is now not okay. Same goes for God with us. Alan Redpath, he says, God's jealousy is love in action. He refuses to share the human heart with any rival, not because he's selfish and wants us all for himself, but because he knows that upon that loyalty to him depends our very moral life. God is not jealous of us. Our God is jealous for us. And we're going to see at the end of the chapter why is it that God's jealous for us? Because he cares for us and he wants us to have a good life, us and our children. And the verse 9 and 10, it says, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, by showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. There's some heresy going throughout churches today and about the, the past few decades about generational sins. Has anyone here heard about generational sin? That just because your father or your grandfather committed this sin, now you are cursed to have to go through those same sins. And that can be further from the truth. Here God is specifically speaking about those committing idolatry and worshiping idols. That if you continue in the same path as your fathers and your father's fathers, God will continue to visit your iniquity. There are no generational sins. Just sins that we make excuses for and follow in the same sinful path as our parents. And of course, if you grow up in a home that your father's an alcoholic and you're there with him each and every day, you're going to be more prone to fighting that and struggling with that. Sadly, the true truth is that the church today has been infected with psychology. That our sins are not my sins and my fault alone, but my sins, they have to belong to the fault of someone else. Family, let's be biblical here. Our sins, my sins, are my fault and mine alone. God's word tells us that in every temptation, the Holy Spirit gives us the way out. Even if your father and your grandfather struggled with the same sin. My sins are my fault and mine's alone. Your sins are your fault and yours alone. We all need to repent and stop blaming others and our past or our parents' past for our sins. Let's be biblical and just repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Ezekiel 18, 20, and 21 kill this false ideology at its core. Ezekiel 18, verse 20 and 21, it tells us, The soul who sins shall die, the son 
shall not bear the guilt of the Father, nor the Father bear the guilt of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Our God is a God of restoration, and all he desires is for us to repent, turn to him, and obey his word. We go now to verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And why is this such a struggle for us? Because the name of God, it has power. Have you ever heard someone on the job site hammering their thumb and saying, Ah, oh, Buddha, right? Oh, Allah. You don't, you don't hear people saying anything like that. Our God has a powerful name. His very name has power. We could be reminded Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, he goes through each and every one of these Ten Commandments. And in Matthew 6 verse 9, he tells us in this manner, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The name of God is holy. David Guzik, he gives us three practical ways that we break this commandment. The first one is profanity. Using the name of God in blasphemy and cursing. The second one is frivolity, using the name of God in a superficial and stupid way. And lastly, it's in hypocrisy, claiming the name of God, but acting in a way that disgraces him. And I think within our day and age, perhaps this last one is the one many are going to have to stand on account before the Lord. They say, I'm doing this ministry in the name of God. I need you to send me all your money for the glory of God. I need you to give to this ministry, offer your life to this ministry on behalf of God. But they are being hypocrites because they're just taking advantage of people. Verse 12, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do nor work you nor your son the, the second half here just shows how much God knows us. Being in youth group, being in young adults, even at the men's conferences, you find people, I'm sure no one here, right? That if you don't explicitly say every single rule, they find some type of loophole to do something that's not honest within the game. And that's why God says you need to keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. Do no work on the Sabbath. But not just you as an individual, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, your cattle, your stranger, male servant, female servant. No one is allowed to work. God stoops down to our level of sinful state. And then he tells us, remember who you once were. You were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. We just came back from our trip to Israel, and truly, the Sabbath day is a very special time throughout the nation of Israel. You get to sing a special song, first and foremost. You can ask anybody that went to Israel, they'll sing you the song, Shabbat Shalom, they'll sing you the song. But also, there's just a stillness and quietness throughout the whole nation. There's almost a, a, a sense of holiness, stepping back and being holy before the Lord their God. 
But for us within the New Testament and the New Covenant, we are not bound to have to keep the Sabbath day. Nor are we holier if we keep the Sabbath day compared to someone else that does not keep the Sabbath day. In fact, believers for centuries, the day we recognize the Sabbath is Sunday because that's the day that Jesus resurrected from the dead. So now that's the day that we come and we worship him. If you're quick, we could turn to Hebrews chapter 8, because I have 10 minutes to finish the next 30 verses. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 4, it says, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant. Which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Family, Jesus, he fulfilled all of the law. And Jesus, he repeats nine out of the ten commandments throughout his ministry here on earth. Can you guess what is the only commandment that Jesus does not repeat? Keeping the Sabbath. In fact, it seems as if our Lord and Savior loved to stick it to the Pharisees and do all of his miracles on the Sabbath day. I I love Jesus. It seems like, oh, it's the Sabbath? Let me do a couple extra miracles today, right? Because for us as believers, Jesus says that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath. It's not just Saturday. It's not just Sunday. We need to labor to enter into the rest of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to read Hebrews chapter 4. Our Sabbath is not waiting till there's three stars in the sky on Friday night and waiting till there's three stars in the sky Saturday night to go about our business. Our Sabbath is spending time with Jesus Christ on a habitual basis. Over and over and over again, we can find rest. You're tired, you're exhausted, you're weary. You don't have to wait till Friday night. You could shut everything off And go into your room, spend time in God's word, and you will restore your soul in him. Verse 16, honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Here we're given the second half of the commandments, which now speak of our relationship with mankind. And first and foremost, what's our first relationship for most of us? Our mom and dad. And here what God tells us is to honor them. It's to respect our mother, and our father. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, 
for this is right. Then he says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Something very special about sons and daughters honoring and respecting their parents. And this is how a society and a nation continues to flourish. When children no longer honor and respect and obey their parents, the society begins to break down. And I encourage you parents here, if your children are still children, you should demand obedience. Not because you're on a trip, but because this is what God says. We are to demand obedience from our children, being gracious, being merciful, just as our Father is gracious and merciful. Then as we get older, we enter into a new season with our parents, where now it's about honoring and respecting our mother and father. It's not just about obeying them in every single thing they tell us. Now we take a step back and we have to honor, respect them. And it's difficult especially to honor and respect them when you disagree with them. But these commandments, these come with a promise that it would be well with us and that we would live long on this earth, that we would live a full life, a good life here on earth. It's especially difficult, and many of you are in the season of honoring and respecting your father and mother when the roles change and now you're taking care of them. You're feeding them. You're providing for them. You're changing their diapers, right? The roles change. Continue to honor them and respect them, and God is going to continue to bless you and honor you. Verse 17, you shall not murder. King James poorly translated this, you shall not kill. But all throughout the Old Testament, we see God himself commanding his people and his nation to go to war and to wipe out evil people. It's not a sin to kill, it's a sin to murder. To have, sorry, man, Siri's going crazy tonight. It's not a sin to kill, it's a sin to murder. If you're protecting yourself or your loved ones and bad things happen, things that we pray will never happen, happen, you have not sinned against the Lord your God. But now if you're thinking about it, you have that hatred in your heart as Jesus takes it to another level. You have that hatred within your heart and you're always mad at someone, always hating someone. Then you've committed murder within your heart. The next one, you shall not commit adultery. We see how special and how holy marriages and sexual intimacy is to the Lord our God. He made the rules. He made the human body. He made the plumbing. He made sex. And he tells us, you shall not commit adultery. Once again, Jesus, he ups the ante. He tells us it's not just about physically committing adultery, but if we are lusting after a woman or a man within our heart, we are committing adultery. No doubt, masturbation and pornography and so much of the sexual misconduct in our world today that is eating away at the moral fiber of our world is breaking this commandment to not commit adultery. Verse 19, you shall not steal. In the time of the Israelites, it was pretty simple. You can't go out and steal something from someone. For us today, this law, it, it's grown because we can steal from our employee, our employer stealing from them on the clock, 
literally robbing the person who's paying us by doing other things? Are we stealing physically with our time, with our emotions? Are we stealing from others? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't be lying against your neighbor. David Guzik, he breaks this ninth commandment down beautifully. He says, we can break the ninth commandment through slander, tail-bearing, creating false impressions, even by silence, and by questioning the motives behind someone's actions, or even by flattery. If you love to gossip, guess what? You're bearing false witness against your neighbor. And now, I don't know why our nation struggles with having these Ten Commandments around courthouses or around government buildings. Does anyone want to break any of these Ten Commandments? I would love to live in a nation where murder is seen as evil. I like living in nations that say murder is evil or stealing is evil or lying against your neighbor is evil. And yet our world and our nation is fighting against the Lord our God. Verse 21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, their house, his field, his servants, his ox, his donkey, his car, his front lawn, his phone, his job, anything and everything we are not to covet. And this is the commandment that Paul says cut him to his heart. Because the first nine commandments, we can do them and not do them through our actions. But coveting is something we do in our mind and in our heart. And especially with coveting, each of us, we fall into this. And James tells us if we've broken one commandment, we've broken them all. The key to not covet is to be content in the Lord our God. If you can find contentment in God, you can really battle against coveting. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8 through 10 tells us, Having food and clothing with these we shall be content. I look around. Thank God all of us, we have clothing here. I look around. I think all of us, we either ate or we're about to go eat as soon as we finish this message. Biblically, we have all we need to be content. Why? Is it because we have food and clothing? No, it's because we have the Lord our God. He's on our side. He's our Father. He knows our needs before we even ask Him. We have more than enough to be content. And if we're honest, where we struggle with covetousness, it's not so much about clothing out of need or food out of need. It's these extra things. Which is why 1 Timothy 6.9 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The end of the chapter we can just read through. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Surely the Lord our God, Yahweh the God of Israel, has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we've heard his voice from the midst of the fire, we have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God 
speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived. You shall go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say and tell us all that the Lord our God says to you and we will hear and do. We read that account in Exodus already. Verse 28, Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they've spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Why is our God a jealous God? Because he desires that it would go well with us and that it would go well for our children. This is why he is a jealous God. And here he's lamenting. He's almost mourning at the nation of Israel and the state of their heart. Chuck Smith, he says, this is God's cry. This is God's lamentation. Oh, that the people would hear me and obey me that it might be well with them and that they might enjoy my blessings forever. I'm sure that God laments over us. Oh, if you would only follow me completely so that I can do for you all that I'm wanting to do. We so limit that which God wants to do because he loves you so much. He's wanting to do so much for you. Verse 30 and 31, go and say to them, return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me and I will speak to you all the commandments, statutes and judgments which you shall teach them that they may observe them in the land which I'm giving them to possess. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you because he's a bully? No. That you may live and that it may be well with you. And that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. Again, the wages of sin is death. The thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. And each time we disobey the Lord our God, what we are reaping is death, theft, and destruction. We need to keep ourselves, as Jude tells us in Jude chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. As we continually obey the Lord our God, we get to stand under the fount of his blessings. He can only bless obedience. He cannot bless disobedience. One last scripture, 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. Worship team, you can come up. It tells us, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Family, where is our loyalty? Is our loyalty to the Lord our God, or is it to someone else? May each and every one of us stay in the love of God. May God not lament over us and our disobedience. May our God not lament over us because he desired to bless us with so many blessings, 
but we walked away from him and we disobeyed him. May we continually respect him and have the fear of the Lord that we would be able to do all that he has commanded us, that it would go well for us, for our children, and for our children's children. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that your desire for us, Lord, is not to harm us or to destroy us, Lord. Lord, your desire for us is that it would go well with us and our children and our children's children. Lord, for anyone here, Lord, who perhaps has been questioning your heart for them, 